This world is not as good as it gets. We live in a fallen and broken world. We live in a world that's full of disappointment and trial. A world full of suffering. The longer we live, the more we realize this. I think about my own life. I've had multiple friends lose their tiny infants before the age of two. I've seen multiple people that were relatively close to me in such great despair and hopelessness that they've sinfully chosen to take their life. The number of people that I know who have been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness are too many to count. Maybe you've experienced great trial and tribulation in this life. Has trouble and suffering come knocking at your door? If it hasn't, it will. It may come in the form of occupational stress. You may have a boss that just kind of breathes down your neck. You may have coworkers who are only out for themselves, could give a rip about what's going on with you. And you are trying to put your best foot forward, but it just feels like you're just walking through landmines at work. There's all kinds of injustice that takes place at work. Perhaps for some of you, suffering may come in the form of just a life situation. I mean, you are struggling to pay the next utility bill, much less your next month's rent. Some of you have experienced great heartache through relationships. I mean, you have failed to receive the love that Jesus would have given you from some of the closest people in your life. Sometimes suffering comes in the form of a medical diagnosis. Some of us indeed have tasted the pain and devastation that cancer can bring upon our lives. And so some questions then linger. If we live in this fallen and broken world, what are we to do? How can we endure? What will get us through the disappointment, the pain, the despair? Here's the answer. A huge vision of Christ and a theology that's big enough to endure any bout of suffering that we face. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to examine verses 36 through 46 today. So if you're using the Bibles we provided for you under the cheers, it's on page 832. And as we get there this morning, I, I want you just to think about this one main truth that I hope we can all walk away with this morning, and that is this. Because of Jesus, Christians can endure suffering to the glory of God. Because of Jesus, Christians can endure suffering to the glory of God. Read with me, if you will, follow along as I read verses 36 through 46 of Matthew chapter 26. Here we go. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What we have here in Matthew 26 is the last night that Jesus is going to be able to to spend with his disciples before his imminent death. He is going to a place called, verse 36 says, Gethsemane. It was a garden that he often frequented with his disciples. But this time it was much, much different. Before he had gone there to spend time with them, perhaps to hang out, to teach them about the kingdom of God, now he is facing incredible suffering. We see that when... They arrived. Jesus gave them a simple instruction. He says in verse 36, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And immediately we learn one of the first keys to enduring suffering, and that is this, that we should endure suffering by running to our Heavenly Father. See, suffering will cause us to run from God or run to God. It is one of those two options. During our times of suffering and trial, the best thing, one of the best things that we can do is pray. J.C. Ryle said prayer is the best practical remedy we can use in the time of trouble. And this was a time of trouble for Jesus. We see this in verse 37. It says that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful, which carries this idea of deep grief and troubled, which conveys this deep distress that's going on in the heart and life of Christ. In verse 38, it's even intensified. He says, look at this. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He was experiencing a sorrow so deep that it could almost take him out. You see, it was at Gethsemane that he stepped off the sandy shores of his public ministry and into an ocean of suffering. 
Jesus stares suffering in the face. It would be a suffering so great that Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus, as he agonized in prayer, he would sweat drops of blood. He was under a tremendous and crushing weight. Can you see him? This is Jesus. The one who spoke the world into existence is now falling to the earth in excruciatingly deep sorrow. Listen to the words of New Testament scholar William Lane as he reflects on what's happening here at Gethsemane. It's powerful words. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. Now make no mistake, heaven was open too. His father heard him. He was strengthened by his father to endure the suffering which was about to take place. But rather than finding another way around the cross, Jesus is staring it right in the face. And I think Lane is right. He staggers here at Gethsemane. Why was Jesus so distressed even to the point of death? We should ask this question. I mean, after all, think about it. Throughout church history, we know that many of the followers of Jesus would face death with great bravery. They would laugh at those that were about to take them to be burned at the stake. So why wouldn't we expect the same from Jesus here? Well, it's not death. It's not just the death and suffering that he's about to face. It's the kind of death that he would face, that he would die in our place for sinners. Look at verse 39. It says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, what made Jesus' suffering and death distinct from all other suffering and all other death in this life is that he had to drink this cup. The cup refers not only to suffering and death, but also to God's wrath. This is what we know as good students of the Old Testament, as Matthew's original audience would have been, primarily a Jewish audience, who would have been familiar with Isaiah 51, verse 17, where it says, Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. See, make no mistake about it. What was so difficult and tragic about the cross was not the physical suffering that Jesus was going to endure. It was the spiritual suffering that he would take on. As he bore the wrath of God in our place, he suffered for our sin, took on the just penalty of our sin on the cross. This is what makes him stagger. This is what the Bible calls propitiation. 
Propitiation is a term we see in the Bible. We want to use terms that the Bible uses, and we're not afraid of kind of deep, theologically rich terms because they teach us much about our God. So what does propitiation refer to? It refers to a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in doing so, changes God's wrath into God's favor. You see, the true weight of the cross was the weight of the cup. In the language of Isaiah 51, Jesus would drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath so that he might be the sin-bearing substitute, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sin. So I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask every single person here, have you received the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of God? This is the gospel. The gospel says God created us for himself. He created every person on the planet to live for his glory. The bad news of the gospel is none of us have done that. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all blown it. We've all offended God's holiness. And because God is not only loving, but he's also just and holy, he must deal with our sin. He must deal with the offense. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus provides a way for us to not experience the just penalty of our sin, which is not only a life that doesn't experience the fullness of God here on earth, but also an eternal life that is separated from God in a place called hell. Jesus dies in our place that we might have life in this life and the life to come. Have you trusted in that work of Christ? This is where life is found. It is my prayer that you know it and know it well. If you have not placed your faith in the saving work of Christ, I just want to encourage you, look to him and live. Look to him and live. If you have questions about what that means, by all means, we want to talk to you. We'll spend all day, all week, all month explaining to you what it means to know Christ in a saving and radical way. But as we reflect on the suffering of Christ here, we also know that, like Jesus, we all face suffering. John 16, 33, Jesus even tells us this. He says in that verse, I have said these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. It's one thing to suffer, but it's an entirely different thing to face suffering alone. Verses 37 and 38 told us that Jesus invited his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. I mean, these were the guys. They were the inner circle. He takes them with him into the garden, and he says, watch and pray. Stay with me while I go pray. And after he prays the first time, for maybe roughly about an hour, he comes back to the disciples and he finds them asleep. His closest friends, the ones who he he should have been able to count on, they're asleep. They were to, as James, I mean, excuse me, Galatians 6 Verse 2 instructs us, they were to bear his burden 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this is what we need. This is what we need when we suffer. We need others around us who will bear the burden with us and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, let's pause and let me encourage you to share your burdens. There are many temptations that will cause us not to share our burdens. For example, you may sometimes fail to share because you think, oh, my situation is not as bad as their situation. My suffering seems so small, so trite. I don't want to share that with someone else. I don't want to share it with them. And they're really going through it. Well, that is a foolish move. As is the inverse of that, that we would say, man, my suffering is so bad, no one's going to understand my situation. I'm not going to share it with them either. See, God has given the church for the church. You got that? The church for the church. I mean, the church is the people of God, not a building. We don't own a building, so hopefully it helps us learn this lesson a little quicker. We, the church, is the people of God. This is why we value community at Redemption Hill. This is why we place a high value on what we call community groups. Meets on Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursday night. As we keep growing, we'll start meeting on Monday nights and Sunday nights and Saturday nights and Friday nights and whatever nights and mornings that we can. That's our prayer. But we value community groups because that provides a context for us to bear one another's burdens, to share what's going on in life, to share struggles at work, family, relationship, suffering, no matter what kind it may be. So let me encourage you to visit a community group this week. Pick up some information on your way out. It's a great opportunity to bear one another's burdens. Now, ironically, those with Christ failed to fulfill the law of Christ. They were sleepy disciples. Look back in verses 40 and 41. It says, Jesus comes to Peter and he said, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So let's be fair to the disciples here. It was not that they lacked desire. Okay, I mean, Peter even, look, look back in verse 35, before uh, our passage here this morning, it says, Peter said to him, he's just predicted his, his suffering and his death. Peter says, if, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So the, the spirit, the desire of the disciples was to endure with Christ, even to suffer with Christ. But Jesus says, look, your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. If they lack the desire, if they lack desire, they did not lack determination. I mean, they wanted to persevere, but they were not determined enough. And these days, this is all too easy for me to identify with. Now, many of you know that my wife, Marcia, just had our second baby girl. Her name's Kesset on May 25th. Now, for some of you fathers in the room, you may be able to identify with me, and that is this. Shortly before bed each night, okay, I'm just trying to be a good father, a good husband. And I'll say something like this to Marsha. Um, hey, baby, just wake me up, you know, for, for a shift. I'm, I'll feed Kesset a bottle. No, no problem. My spirit is willing, <laughs> but my flesh is really, really weak. 
I mean, so weak that I don't even hear Kessid crying. And I don't hear Marcia saying, T, wake up. T, T, wake up. She calls me T, by the way, sometimes. Oftentimes, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. I mean, this is just a small example in the life of our family, but it's so true spiritually. You know this, right? The curse of good intentions. You intend on doing so many great things for God, and your life fails to meet up with those intentions. So Jesus says his, his, his words here are not so much a rebuke of the disciples, it's just an encouragement to say, pray. You failed this time, but pray. It's all the more reason, because our flesh is so weak, we are in all the more need to pray. So the first encouragement we have this morning is to endure suffering by running to our Heavenly Father, and specifically running to Him in prayer. Number two, our second encouragement is this, Endure suffering by submitting to the purposes of God. Endure suffering by submitting to the purposes of God. Let's read verses 42 through 44 together. It says this, Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. It is here that Jesus continues to set a marvelous example for our prayer life. He persists in prayer. And let's really examine the content of his prayer. What does he say in verse 39, in verse 42? And it says, he said the same thing again in verse 44. He says, look, Father, if there is another way, if it be possible, I would love for there to be another way because the the suffering is going to be excruciating. And yet I know in your plan, if that's your will, I submit to your will. I mean, Jesus here is exemplifying his example prayer that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We must pray for God's will to be done in our lives. See, Jesus submitted to the purposes of his heavenly Father, but we must admit this is not so easy for us. When we suffer, we will ask questions. I mean, if you're suffering and you're asking questions, let me encourage you. It's okay. It's okay. It's good for us to ask these questions. Usually, these questions are very short questions. Something like this. Why? Why, Lord? Why this? Why now? Why me? We want to know if there is a purpose to our suffering. Our suffering usually doesn't make sense to us, but let me encourage you this morning, it makes sense to God. He is the one who sees the end from the beginning. 
We may not understand our suffering as we're going through it, but we must not assume that God is absent, that God does not care, that God does not love us. And we must not assume that God is to blame. I want to attempt to diffuse some bad theology that is so prevalent in our churches today and even sometimes prevalent among Christians. One of those pieces of bad theology goes something like this. When people suffer, their response is to point their finger at God. They lay the blame at God's feet as if he is responsible for their suffering. I mean, this is true for, of course, many skeptics, atheists. They love to point out that, man, if God is good and God is loving, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? And so they point their finger. They encourage others to point their finger at God. This is your fault. And even sometimes we as Christians whether our theology is a little underdeveloped or even if our theology is really good and we're just struggling, we're tempted to point our finger at God. I think sometimes we fail, we we do this because we fail to make a distinction between God allowing something to happen and God being the author of evil. So we affirm God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He can thwart any plan of the adversary. He can thwart any form of suffering in our life. That's why we pray, right? I mean, we ask God, God, do this. Cure my friend of their disease and illness. Restore this broken relationship that's going nowhere. We pray like that, and we should, because God is sovereign, and he's king. So God can stop our suffering, but sometimes in his mysterious wisdom, he allows suffering, but that should not cause us to conclude that he is the author of evil. You see, rather than pointing our finger at God, we should point our fingers at ourselves. You say, Tanner, what do you mean? This is not encouraging. I mean, I'm going through it, and now you're saying it's my fault? It's our fault. See, if we would read the first three chapters of the Bible, we know that God's original design for this world, this creation, was not suffering. When Adam fell, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they ushered in the fall of man and consequently the curse that followed where now we don't experience, in any full sense, the the flourishing life that God intended for us. And so now there is all kinds of suffering in the world, not only personal suffering, but even kind of cosmic, on cosmic levels. Tsunamis and earthquakes and deadly tornadoes that rage. We live in a fallen world. So if we would read the first three chapters of our Bible, and the last three chapters of our Bible, we would see this meta-narrative, this arcing story in the Bible that points us to creation, fall, redemption, and we're going to talk about future restoration. That is the overarching theme from Genesis to Revelation. So when we suffer, let's not point our finger at God. 
But then number two, here's another dangerous theological position, and it's espoused by those who preach a gospel of the health and wealth variety. That would be what we should call a false gospel. And that is this. They say, if you have enough faith, you will not suffer. If you have enough faith, you will automatically be healed. Well, let's just say, Jesus and Paul must not have had their act together. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he receives five times 39 lashes. He's beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked three times, stoned once, imprisoned multiple times, constantly in danger. Does this mean that Paul lived some kind of life that was not pleasing to God? Did Paul lack faith? No. No. But then the question still remains, why does God allow our suffering? Why? Why does he allow our suffering? Well, number one, we learn from the book of Job that sometimes there is no explanation. Sometimes there is no explanation. I mean, 42 chapters in the book of Job, we expect some kind of answer from God, why he allowed the suffering in Job's life, and there is never an explanation. A wise, much older pastor a few years ago said this, and this is so good, as you bear a burden with your friend who's going through it, he said this, his name was Bill Booyer, he said, Don't be so foolish as to try to speak when God is silent, when there are no explanations. Why would you presume to give an answer when God is not given the answer? Your friend may be looking for explanations. We all look for explanations. But what we need from one another is, is, is our presence, is our concern, is our love, is our prayers. Not necessarily explanations. Let's share truth with one another, but let's be careful there because most of the time in our suffering, most of the time, there's not a clear explanation in this life. But we can be assured of this. God can and will work all things, even the greatest suffering, for the good of his saints. This is what Romans 8.20, you need to know Romans 8.28. All right? you, just need to, you just need to memorize it, like right now. Okay? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things, all things work together for good. God is working to accomplish his purposes. Now, in what ways do we sometimes see this? Let me just throw a few out there. Um, A few things that we can affirm. Number one, God is working to glorify himself. We see this in the death of Lazarus. When when Jesus receives word that his good friend Lazarus is, is at the point of death and dying, Jesus tells his disciples, look, his death will be for the glory of God. This is the same thing that he said about the blind man in John chapter 9. Was it because of this man's sin that he was born blind? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, it was so that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. 
in our greatest suffering, God's glory can and will be in some way revealed if we have eyes to see. This should be our greatest concern, that God's glory will be revealed. Number two, let me encourage you with this. God is working for our sanctification in our suffering. In other words, God is working to make us more like Christ. He uses the, the, the suffering in our life to change us, to hunger for Him, to make us more like Him. This is what James 1, 2 through 4 says. Consider it pure joy. Sounds kind of strange, James. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith, and that's what happens when we go through trials, our faith is tested. And that's a great way, by the way, I know I'm kind of getting off the verse here, but that's a great way to pray for your friends, is to pray that their faith would endure. Knowing that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If suffering does nothing else, listen to this. This is just something that I've been learning in the past eight months or so, or a couple years, or maybe my whole life. Not my whole life. A lesson I'm learning. If suffering does nothing else, it should cause us to hate sin. Think about that. If our fall, I mean, we want to put Adam on the hook, but if we were in the garden, would we have not probably made the same decision? If our sin is the culprit for all the suffering in the world, then shouldn't that make us want to kill sin in our life, as Romans 8 talks about? So our suffering is often an opportunity for God to work for our sanctification. And then here's another one. This is just a way that we should pray, that God would use our suffering to bring about the salvation of others. Perhaps God will use your suffering as an opportunity to give testimony to His good grace in your life. You may have an opportunity, as someone observes your life, to give a word about how that you have resources that are beyond yourself, that you have divine power to endure suffering because God grants it to you. You might just be the catalyst that God uses. Your suffering might be the catalyst that God uses to see someone come to faith in Christ. We should pray that way. When we suffer, we should cling to the character of God. God is still loving and good. We should cling to the promises of God, promises like Romans 8.28. And we should cling to the purposes of God, even when we can't see what those purposes are. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about our suffering. He says this, When you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. You may not know why God is allowing this in your life, but you can trust that he is good, that he is for you, that he loves you and that his heart behind it is nothing but righteous. I love the words of this hymn by William Cooper. It's entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to what he says. He says this in that hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds, Of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs 
and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. When God's providence, when his ordering of this world seems to be so frowning, we can trust his heart that behind it all, he hides a smiling face. I mean, we need to wrestle with this because our temptation is like, this is so cruel, and it often is cruel. But we also tend to say, this is so pointless. And we must trust that the purposes of God assure us that it is not pointless. Listen to what Tim Keller says. Tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil, evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. We can understand this as to say, once again, we do not enjoy a divine vantage point. We do not see the end from the beginning, and the beginning from the end. Therefore, we must bow in humble trust that God is at work, even in our greatest suffering. His purposes will prevail. And again, they will prevail even when our prayers are not answered like we want them to be. I mean, you're going to be going through suffering in your life, and you're going to say, God does not listen to my prayer. Did he not hear the prayer of Jesus three times? Did he not hear the prayer of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, I had this thorn in my flesh three times. I pleaded with the Lord. Did the Lord remove it? But what did Jesus say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, how does our passage end this morning? Let's look at verses 45 and 46. It says this, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I believe we can build a theology of suffering, a theology for enduring suffering, from one single phrase in verse 45. Jesus says, the hour is at hand. He's referring to the hour of his death, the impending hour of his suffering, the hour when he would take upon the wrath of God for us and die on a bloody Roman cross for the sins of the world. Let me give you three ways that I believe we can endure suffering by finding the solution in Jesus. Endure suffering by finding the solution in Jesus. Number one, Jesus understands and can identify with all of our suffering. This may be difficult to hear this morning, but we will never suffer like Jesus did. Never. Jesus suffered and he understands. In Christ we have a God who not simply was familiar with our suffering, but indeed suffered himself. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. 
He was a high priest. He is a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15. Sometimes we emphasize the deity of Christ so much that we neglect the humanity of Christ. Yes, Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. He can identify with us in all of our suffering. I hope that comforts you in some way this morning. Jesus understands. He is a God who understands. Number two, in Christ's suffering, we see the sovereign power of God to work good from evil. I mean, there is no clearer example, no greater example of how God works good from evil than the cross of Christ. No greater example. We never see evil at its highest than at the cross of Christ, and we never see the purposes of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, any higher than the cross of Christ. Even when we don't see it, God is with his sovereign power, working good out of our evil. Number three, the death and resurrection of Jesus provides hope for the restoration of all things. If suffering does nothing else, it surely tells us that this world is not as good as it gets. And so Jesus will, the Bible tells us, one day come back and he will reverse this cursed ground that we walk on. He will right every single wrong. He will do away with all of our suffering. Because of his death and his resurrection, we can hope for that day. He will make it right. He has the last word in all of our suffering. Jesus says in John 16, we didn't read the whole verse, by the way, some of you caught that earlier. Jesus says to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Some of you are experiencing great trial in life right now. I pray that this passage this morning, the truth about Jesus will comfort your souls will provide you some resources to know that you can endure because of the example of Christ and because of the strength that God supplies us by His Holy Spirit. Others of us aren't facing this, uh, maybe this great of suffering right now, but there is a good chance that we will. We should pray that we won't, but there's a good chance we will in this fallen world. And so we need to be prepared to cling to Christ, cling to Christ in prayer, understanding his purposes, knowing that he provides the solution for us to endure all forms of suffering in this life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that Jesus, as our suffering Savior, provides the resources for us to endure suffering and live with hope. And God, it's my prayer that for those of us who may be just going through it right now, that you would comfort us by your Spirit and that you would strengthen us by your Spirit to endure well and in the process, in some strange and mysterious and unforeseen way, that you would allow us to glorify you in our suffering.
Father, I pray even now as we sing songs of worship that you would speak to our hearts, encourage our hearts, uplift our hearts. Father, of course, I pray for anyone who does not know you as the saving king of their lives, that they would come to know you as that soon. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're not going to have one song of response. We're going to have two. And so we're going to invite you to stand and to sing a couple of great songs of the faith with us. But look, if you just need to sit there and pray and just listen to these words of the song, feel free to do that. We're going to sing even the words of Job when he was faced with such great suffering. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're going to sing about how Christ is stronger, even in the midst of our greatest suffering. He has overcome the world. Let's stand and sing together.